0: Thank you very much. Uh, my name's Tim, I'm an alcoholic. Can you hear me all right, everyone? Good, I can see some thumbs up. Um, so my date of sobriety is the 24th of July, 1993. My home group is group 12 in San Antonio. I live in London. I'm um, a sponsor in Galveston, Texas, AA sponsor. I've got an AlAnon home group as well. This week, we're going to be looking at step one um, in, in the original sense of step one uh, in AA and cross applying it to other substances and addictions, which is pretty straightforward, actually. Next week, it's going to get a bit more fruity as we look at step one um, for Alanon and Coder, and there's sort of relationship problems. Uh, where step one can be used, but you need a, a bit of nows to do it. And the big book is still helpful there. But today we're just gonna be looking at, as it were, ordinary addictions. Um, I don't wanna keep screen sharing the big book all the way through this. So I'm gonna call out page numbers, I'm, but I'm not, I don't wanna turn this into a class because it's not a class. Um, I don't want it to be like school. Um, if it, as it's recorded, if, if you're worried about where to find things, you can listen back to things again, and I'll be calling out page numbers. Um, we need a bit of background, though. So why are the steps even relevant? Um, until 1935, if you're an alcoholic, uh, you were going to die of alcoholism probably. A couple of people found a solution in 1935, and here we are today. In 1939, Bill W. wrote down something, I'm not an AA historian, you'll have to get someone else on that, but essentially an amalgamated version of what the first hundred did. It wasn't exactly what anyone did, but it it pretty much covered the territory. Uh, The steps are the program. Um, The fellowship provides a framework service, makes it all happen, keeps me busy, but the steps are the program. And step one is terribly important for lots of reasons, but one of them is that the rest of the steps require a lot of action for the rest of my natural life. Right. (laughs) I've got to have a good motivation to take action day in, day out for the rest of my life. I've got to understand it's necessary. If I don't understand it's necessary, I won't do it. There's a meeting near where I live, which is called something like um, they came for the drinking, but stayed for the thinking. I don't. I stay for the drinking. Uh, because I understand what alcoholism is. Um, I'll come to what I mean by that later on. It will become very apparent, I think. So what what role does the big book play? Um, uh, sometimes when people go to lots of meetings, you, see, you know, you see the steps on the wall. And by the way, if anything I say is helpful, wonderful, and if it's not, ignore it. There we go, health warning there. If you go to lots of meetings, they have the steps on the wall. And at lots of meetings, they read how it works at the beginning or the beginning of how it works, which includes, well, you think it includes the 12 steps. It doesn't at all. It includes a summary of the 12 steps. It's like, as it were, a cookery book. Page one, Quiche Lorraine. Page two, Black Forest Gatto. From the two words quiche and Lorraine, you wouldn't be able to make a Quiche Lorraine, let alone several Quiches Lorraine. You you need a recipe. Same with Black Forest Gatto. Someone said to you, go and make a Black Forest Gatto. Well, if you are very clever and knew a lot about cooking, you might be able to wing it. But it wouldn't be a black. It wouldn't be the Black Forest ghetto. Um, And it's similar with the steps. You read it off the scroll. You read. You listen to you listen to people in meetings. That's the deadly. If you want to find out the, about the steps, the last thing you want to do is listen to too much that goes on in meetings. You'd be thoroughly befogged. So everyone says something different. In most meetings, and the meetings where everyone says the same thing are dull. So you can't win, can you? You know, the, the, the meetings which are on message I mean, five minutes in, you've heard everything you're gonna hear because everyone else is gonna say the same thing. Uh, and it's very confu- people are very confused in AA, uh, particularly about the first step, the fourth step isn't even more of a disaster, but the, the, the first step in particular. Fortunately, there is help at hand. And the help that is at hand is in the big book. Where do the steps come from? They come from the big book. If you want to know what step one means, you read the relevant chapters of the big book. Same with step two, same with step three. And you can read it yourself. No one else needs to read it for you. What I'm hoping to do here is to encourage you to go and read it for yourselves. I'm going to give you a bit of an overview, a little bit of signposting, won't hurt because the it's it's well written in some ways but it's a bit of a muddle it's not written like a textbook at all it darts all over the place if you don't know what you're looking for my experience with newcomers you you give them the big book to read and they get something out of it but they don't get a clear structure of step one in their heads at the end of it far from it so a little bit of signposting doesn't hurt which is what I'm going to do today, but a signposting on step one. Um, Step one is littered through the big book, all the way up to page uh, 44 is where step one is summed up and then we segue elegantly into step two. And it sums it up this way. If when you honestly want to, you find you cannot quit entirely, or if when drinking you have little control over the amount you take, you're probably alcoholic. If that be the case, you may be suffering from an illness which only a spiritual experience will conquer. Now, that's your summary of step one. Everything else we're going to say expands upon those points. But let's look at those points. Um, A friend of mine describes addiction thus, and I think it's true for my addictions, I'm not just an alcoholic and an alimonic, I've had problems in other areas as well. And this is a great one-liner which captures the whole thing, a persistent return to a destructive pattern. I'll say it again, a persistent return to a destructive pattern. It's good for drink, it's good for drugs, it's good for sex addiction, it's good for workaholism, it's good for alanonism, it's good for code, it's good, it's good for everything. A persistent return to a destructive pattern. You've got to have those two elements there. If you if the pattern isn't destructive, persistently returning to it is not a problem. If you've got a destructive pattern, Pattern, but you don't persistently return to it, you don't have a problem. There's a horrible Italian restaurant near where I live, and um, just everything was wrong. It was awful. So we didn't go back again. It is not a problem. (laughs) That Italian restaurant will be a problem in my life only if I persistently went back to it. Now, The eagle eyed or eared of you, I don't know how well eagles hear, but the eagle eyed or the eagle eared of you will have spotted in that little passage from page 44. If when you honestly want to, you find you cannot quit entirely. So that's the that's the persistent return. And then it says, or if when drinking, you have little control over the amount you take, you're probably alcoholic. It's got or not and. Um, I've met people who, when they drink, drink destructively, so they don't drink. I know other people that absolutely have to have their glass of wine. My family is French, so of course they have to have their glass of wine at at tea time, but they don't drink excessively. So there isn't a problem for it to be a real problem. You've got to have both both elements, a persistent return and the destructive pattern. Why does it say "or"? The language of the big book hedges on a lot of occasions in order to avoid controversy. So there's an "or" here. It says, you're probably alcoholic. You may be suffering. Later on, rarely, rarely have we seen a person fail. If you hedge, no one can argue with you. It's very clever but you've got to look at the substance behind it. If ever your sponsor says to you, that might be a bad idea, what you need to hear is that's a terrible idea, never do it again, stop it now, and share it with five people. What they will say is you you might want to think twice about doing that. We hedge, some people hedge, I don't, I'm blunt, some people hedge. So step one in the big book is really everything up to 44. And there's some other neat stuff in there as well. We need to know three things in step one. What is the prognosis? Sorry, what is the diagnosis? What is the prognosis? What is the treatment? How do you tell if you're an alcoholic or addict? How how can you tell? If you are one, what does it mean? and then what's the treatment? And step one encompasses those three things. And each is a big topic and is not adequately summarized by, we admitted we were powerless over alcohol, dash that our lives have become unmanageable. That very, very short form of step one is simply an aid memoir It's not meant to be comprehensive. Just like the traditions have a short form and a long form, the concepts have a short form and a long form, and then the essays. Um, The headline belies a lot of content. Now, the diagnosis, and so I'm gonna be controversial. The diagnosis is that alcoholism is twofold. It's a twofold illness. Um, Bill is clear about this in the in the big book, and he's then clear twenty odd years later in the twelve and twelve double-edged sword, not triple-edged sword. We're going to come to our manageability later, um, but let's look at let's look at those the, what the two edges of the sword are. Well, we've already covered them in a sense. I keep going back to drink. And when I drink, I overshoot, I I drink too much. Um, This phrase that we hear such a lot, phenomenon of craving or physical craving comes from the doctor's opinion. And this is a description of what happens to me when I have a drink. And the best way to think of it uh, is simply, I drink too much. What is too much? Too much for me. It may not be too much for you. Uh, When I was drinking, I knew people that drank more than me that didn't experience the problems I experienced. I've known people in AA who drank way less than me that experienced very significant problems. So it's not about the quantity. If you go to too many AA meetings, you'll hear people telling dreadful stories about vast quantities and terrible side effects that they had. Uh, What matters is that it was too much for me. Now, one tricky aspect of this is it never felt like too much at the time it felt just right. Every drink I ever had seemed like a very good idea at the time. The real test of whether you drank too much, I think, is what happened the next morning? Did you regret how much you drank when you got up the next morning, when you started to face the consequences? That's how you test it. A friend of mine describes it very aptly as overshooting Now, as I say, in the moment, it doesn't feel like overshooting. In retrospect, you realize you overshot again. (laughs) Time and time again, I overshot. So the question here is why? Why do I keep overshooting? Sometimes people say things like, I drank on feelings of X, Y, and Z. I drank on feelings of depression. I drank on feelings of loss all of those sorts of things, anxiety. We're not interested in this point about the first drink. We're interested in why did I have the fifth? Why did I have the 17th? Why did I have the 25th? People say, I drank for the effect. Did you really get an effect of the 25th drink after you've had 24? I didn't. I didn't think through the 25th drink, or the seventh drink, or the third drink. It was simply automatic. Post-rationally, you see, post-rationalizing, it doesn't work, it doesn't add up. The relevant passage, oh, I can't read out all the passages on step one, I'd be here for two weeks if I did that. So I'm just gonna select a few. And this is from the second page of the doctor's opinion. Now, this is, this is a $10 sentence, so I'm gonna read it out and then put it in English for, for ordinary folks like me. It did not satisfy us to be told that we could not control our drinking just because we were maladjusted to life, that we were in full flight from reality or were outright mental defectives. In English, what this means to me is I didn't have a skinful every day because I was unhappy, mad, or thick. I was, okay, I was pretty, there were psychotic, I think, moments towards the end of my drinking. I was arrested for some very, very peculiar behavior. Uh, I had hallucinations. There were certainly um, periods where I was in full flight from reality. I had trouble reading at the end of my drinking. If I read a paragraph, I couldn't remember what was at the beginning. I was certainly very unhappy. But what I was like at the end of my drinking is not, uh, doesn't produce interesting evidence. What matters is, what was I like at the beginning of my drinking? What was I like in the early stages? Did I, drink only, did I drink too much only when I was unhappy? No, I did it when I was happy too. Did I drink too much when things were not going my way? Uh, yeah. What about when they were going your way? Yes. So it's not because things were not going my way. I, I could ruin a perfectly nice evening with friends where I'm having a wonderful time. I didn't overshoot because of circumstance emotion, insanity, or low IQ. Once you knock off those options, buddy boy, the only option left is I do it because I'm built like it. Physical craving does it. So the craving means that when I have one, I'm triggered and I desperately want, need more. Why does it say physical? I don't feel it in my body. Physical is, a, is the doctor's theory. If it's not in your mind, where else is it gonna be? In other words, if it's not in your consciousness, if it's not because of a reasoning process, what could, what could the reason be? Um, if you know people who start drinking again after many years, you'll know that sometimes they just can't stop for two years, five years, 10 years, and and they're out for another 10 years or longer. They have all the knowledge. When they returned to drinking, their lives had been fully sorted out, psychologically perfectly normal. One drink and they're off to the races again. So the conclusion that, and uh, it's a theory, the conclusion is I drink the way I drink because that's the way I drink. One other point about the physical craving, it says this reaction, this reaction of really overshooting very badly, never occurs in the average temperate drinker, also a line from from the doctor's opinion, which means I don't have to prove with my sponsee that it happened every single time. You know the way sponsees come back? Well, there was that one time in Mallorca that dot, 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 so maybe I'm not an alcoholic, irrelevant. If you've got it, if you've got it, you've got it. It's like a rash; it doesn't have to cover your whole body for you to know you've got it, and to rush off to the doctor because of it. If you had a rash, you wouldn't say, "Well, I, I I'm not going to worry about my rash." Or, or my left hand is fine; the rest of my body is covered in rash, but my left hand is fine, so we haven't got a problem here. If you've got it, you've got it and the physical craving is the same. If it ever happens, good luck. Now, um, the second part of this becomes much more interesting. Oh, actually just one one more thing about the physical craving. People understand this idea very readily when they join AA, Uh, they hear the line, Uh, One is too many and a thousand aren't enough. And people instinctively get that. And that's very good. What is less well understood is that alcohol remains in the system for some time. Other drugs, I'm told, remain for longer. So on the second day of the relapse, I relapsed on and off for three years before I got finally sober in, in, in 19... 93. Um, the second day of the relapse, why did I drink on the second day of the relapse? My friend Davinda uh, drank after a, a, a few, I, maybe a year. He's sober many years now, but at one point he drank after a year. On the first day of the slip, um, which was say a Monday, he had a beer. Now, anyone, I suppose, could have a relapse. But the question is, why did he have the drink on the Tuesday? The only thing which was different about that Tuesday compared to the previous 52 Tuesdays is that that was the only Tuesday on which he drank the night before. And then he drank on the Wednesday, he drank on the Thursday. You know, there might be a one in 350 chance of drinking on one day? What are the chances of those two drinking episodes being unrelated? What about three? You end up with astronomical odds after a while. You have to conclude the drink happened on the Tuesday because of the drink on the Monday. The drink happened on the Wednesday because of the drink on the Tuesday. Which means if I were to drink again, I might never stop. And this is the story on page 32 of the big book of the man who was sober for 25 years and started drinking. Previously, he had been able to stop, this time he couldn't. So the physical craving pertains not just to the day of the slip, it's re-entry into a new world. It's crossing to the other side of the looking glass possibly never to return. This is a very serious matter. This is why I don't stay for the thinking, I stay for the drinking. Because if I have another drink, I don't know what's gonna happen. So, fine. Physical craving. We then have this question of uh, the mental obsession. What this really denotes is Uh, I'm going to use another $10 phrase, which is cobbled together from ideas in the big book, which for me sums it up. It's the persistently recurring, overpowering delusion that a drink is a good idea. The persistently recurring, overpowering delusion that a drink is a good idea. And I'm going to take this from the back. The notion that a drink is a good idea or harmless, or innocuous, or even if I drink, maybe I'll come back tomorrow. It's a delusion. There is no such thing as a safe drink for someone like me. The physical craving must be understood before this mental obsession can be understood. Only if I cannot drink safely would it be insane For me to have the first drink. To have the first drink, two things have got to happen. The thought of having the drink must occur to me. And secondly, I must obey that thought. Without my obedience to my own thinking, I can't have the first drink. So the problem, the real problem, I can't do anything about the physical craving. The real problem is I have a mind which will tell me a drink is a good idea when it is not. And it refers to this as a uh, as a mental obsession. Now, the the example I always give is always makes people laugh for some reason. If I were to say, which I'm not, I'm obsessed with Justin Bieber it would suggest that I think of nothing but Justin Bieber. My room is covered in posters of Justin Bieber. Um, That's obsession in the ordinary sense in the language. It means constant thought of something, preoccupation with something. That is absolutely not the meaning that is intended in the big book. In fact, the two biggest examples of the mental obsession are in the stories about a chap called Jim on page 35 and a second story about a chap called Fred on page 39. Neither of them are preoccupied with drinking. In fact, quite the reverse. The people try to make an awful lot of the run up to the drink in the description of Jim's relapse, the description of Fred's relapse. But the point about those run-ups is there is no forewarning of the drink. Even in Jim's story, people say, well, he had a resentment. I'm sure, if, I, if we did a show of hands, I won't ask one, how many of you have been upset by something on any level over the last month or so? Probably over the last half an hour, you've, there we go. We've got a couple of hands up. So if, if getting upset by something automatically triggered a drink, we'd all be drunk or do whatever else floats up though. That's not it. It's very clearly not it. Bill, on page 15, talks about uh, having waves of self-pity and resentment. He is in far worse shape emotionally than Jim is. Bill doesn't drink because his life is in the hands of a higher power. Jim's life is not in the hands of a higher power and he does drink from a very casual thought. So the mental obsession is the persistently recurring delusion that a drink is a good idea and it overpowers him. It's like someone who marches up to the queue outside a nightclub and is waved past the queue straight into the VIP room. There's like a the, the bit of my brain which produces the notion that a drink is a good idea in my untreated state has a hotline to the frontal lobes and it turns into action. And there might be forethought, there might be no forethought. There might be uh, parallel with my sound reasoning there ran some insanely trivial excuse for the first drink. I think that's on 37. So I might have two trains of thought at once. Jim's story. Um, if you're not familiar with it, Jim is having a perfectly ordinary day. He's a little bit self-centered, but no more than the best of us, I imagine. Uh, And he has this notion that if he uh, puts whiskey in his milk, he'll be all right. Now, this is a distortion. This is a distortion of reality. Um, And it refers in the book to a peculiar mental twist. So his mind tells him something that is untrue and he obeys it and he drinks. Fred has a wonderful life, wonderful personality, wonderful family, wonderful career, wonderful day. His mind tells him that a couple of cocktails with dinner would be fine. And this starts a long relapse. Now, if you count how many cocktails he has in that story, it's two. He then goes on to have more drinks after dinner. But the idea which impels him to drink a couple of cocktails with dinner would be nice is not untrue. He even has that. They are nice. So Jim is misled by a lie, peculiar mental twist fred is misled by the truth strange mental blank spot a truth which has a hole in it the hole in it is the understanding that it won't stop at the two nice drinks with dinner it also says or maybe he this is in in the step one passage also in in the big book maybe he doesn't think at all Now, the big book is very naughty because it says at one point, we're going to examine the mental states which precede the first drink, because obviously this is the crux of the problem. But we discover disarmingly that the mental states which precede the first drink include deliberate thought of drinking, casual thought of drinking, uh, deluded thinking. Thinking things that are true, thinking nothing at all, thinking two things at once. There is no single mental state that precedes the first drink other than the notion of having a drink. That's it, which is then obeyed by the individual. So what step one in summary tells me? These two elements, there is part of my mind which will tell me a drink is a good idea, I will obey that, I will have the drink, and then I may never stop. In terms of, that's the understanding, the diagnosis. Um, On the physical craving, the diagnosis is very, very simple. Um, Did I persistently not even necessarily every time but on a regular basis overshoot did i drink so much that i regretted it the next day that's fairly straightforward the mental obsession i'm going to move to where it may be slightly quieter do bear with me the um the mental obsession is rather harder. Some, in some parts of the book, it talks about drinking against, against our will. Now that's not a helpful way to look at things because as I said earlier on, every drink I ever had seemed like a good idea at the time. Uh, I never met a bottle of gin I didn't like. So I didn't feel that I was drinking against my will. So that's a, that's a very poor test. The real test is on the top of page 21. It contrasts alcoholics to certain types of hard, a certain type of hard drinker, namely someone who when they drink looks very much like an alcoholic in terms of quantity and consequences. But at some point they have the shock of their life and they think the game is up and they're gonna stop. A really good test for for the mental obsession, am I the sort of person who is capable of returning to drink despite the consequences, is to look back at the first time I spotted the consequences and then ask myself, did I drink after that? How many times? Five times? A hundred times? 3,000 times? I remember when I was um, 16 or so, uh, living in Germany, and I got drunk with some 'er ne'er-do-wells and we got into the most frightful trouble, which involved a car crash. And I I thought the next day, I, I need to be really careful. I was not really careful. The fact I didn't try to be careful is evidence enough. People often say, well, I I don't know if I could stop on my own. I've never tried. That's the point. A normal person would have. When you take something out of the oven, do you wear oven mitts? I do. Why? Because once, once I burnt myself. If you've burnt yourself taking something out of the oven several thousand times in a row, you got a problem. It's no good saying, well, I, I've never bought any oven gloves. I, I just keep forgetting. It's rubbish. So all I need to do to look at, at, do I have the mental obsession element of this for diagnostic purposes, I've got to move on. Is say, first of all, um, when did I first get consequences from my drinking? When I was 16, when is my last drink, 21. So for five years on a regular basis, I kept going back again, and 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 again. again. There we go. So I'm the sort of person who does not learn from experience when it comes to alcohol. The experience does not inform the decision-making process. And here's the other thing. Uh, A lot of people, particularly women, people that get into AA young, don't identify with the, (laughs) I'm now an old white man, so I can say this, the old white men who talk about, (laughs) you know, typical old white men drinking. Um, On page 21, it says, at some point, in the drinking career of any real alcoholic, he begins to lose all control of his liquor consumption when he starts to drink. I was talking to someone the other day. I said, when was was the first time you lost control of the amount you drink? She said, 14. So I said, well, according to the big book, you've been a real alcoholic since the age of 14. It wasn't the last six months, pumpkin. You were like it from the age of 14, according to this. So the diagnosis, is very simple, two elements. Um, I have a mind which takes me back to the first drink, even though it's a rotten idea, and I have a body which impels me to continue, even though it's a rotten idea. Good, so that's diagnosis. Prognosis is, in a medical sense, well, what's gonna happen if you carry on? Fatal, progressive, incurable. Three elements, fatal, progressive, incurable. Fatal means it's gonna kill you. Um, I'm acquainted with the chief physician of a very large mental hospital uh, and drug and alcohol treatment center in Germany, who said on average men die 20 years early because of alcoholism, women 22 years, fatal. Uh, it's progressive, it's going to get worse when you get as you get older. And we see this, uh, the, the, one of the best examples is the story on page 32 of the big book. This man of 30, we've talked about before, who was sober for 25 years, but then starts to drink again. When he resumes drinking, he tries to stop as he had before, but discovers that now he can't. In the meantime, it progressed. Uh, And I won't recount more stories because we don't need it. This is something that you'll hear a lot of in meetings when people report what happened when they went back. They often report they picked up at the point they would have been had they been drinking all along. It's like there was a parallel track along which their alcoholism was uh, uh, running and they just flipped to the other track. Uh, it's progressive. And or, incidentally as well, some people say, well, my drinking actually improved over the years. I, when I was tw- in my 20s, I drank vast quantities. In my 30s, I, it, it's become a lot less. Now, here's a really interesting thing. And this is very, very true, by the way, with sex addiction as well. One becomes so sensitized that even the smallest quantities Make you crazy. You physically can't take large quantities anymore. So the fact you're drinking less is a sign it's progressed. Where, whereas a few drinks in your 20s would be nothing, and a few drinks in your 40s, you go insane. Too much doesn't mean quantity, it means more than is good for you, more than you can stand progressive, fatal, and incurable. Now, incurability comprises two elements. First element of incurability is my physical reaction. I asked this doctor in Germany. I said, is that true? He said, think of it like a Formula One racetrack. It gets decommissioned, gets taken out of action. You put yellow and black tape across the entrance, but if the car goes back onto the racetrack, it'll, st- it'll go round and round and round again, just like it did before. The other element of incurability is, uh, and this, this is very clearly demonstrated by one's acquaintances who have drunk after many years of recovery the just because the mental obsession is gone for a while doesn't mean it's gone forever um my friend davinda says continuous sobriety doesn't keep you sober the fact one has been continuously sober for a long time does not guarantee that that will continue i used to do talks at a treatment center in west london one you, you knew it was expensive because the patients didn't have to come to the AA meetings. The cheap ones, they forced them to come to the AA meetings. The expensive ones, they give them the choice. Of course, most of them don't come. <laughs> but I have no opinion on the outside issues. Um, sometimes I forget these are recorded. Um, what's the point? The point is that uh, most of the people who are in there had been AA members for five, 10, 15, 20 years drifted for a while, ended up back in the drink, and now they're screwed, but they know everything. Very bad combination. Incurable. I'm gonna be like, I'm gonna have the capacity to return to alcoholic drinking forever. Okay, doesn't mean I can't recover, but it means I'm gonna have to watch it. So we've covered diagnosis we've covered prognosis um, the spiritual solution is entailed by all of this and by that I mean this as I said earlier to drink again I've got to conceive of drinking and then obey that conception I've my mind has got to throw up the idea of having a drink and then I must obey it only if I'm in the consistent habit of not obeying my own mind by obeying the higher power instead can I guarantee that when that thought arises not if when they prophesied this is the line they used with Fred they prophesied that the time would come when the moment comes that a drink occurs to me and I've had moments when a drink has very very casual thought perfectly innocuous I've got to make sure that in that moment, I am in the habit of obeying the higher power. How do you make sure of that? You have a life which is built around the four Ps, the 12-step program, the principles of that program, the people you trust in AA, or whichever other fellowship, and the higher power, fail-safe combination. I like sponsors, I like all my sponsees one way or another, but I've got a lot of time for sponsees that call before they act, not after. Because this is someone that is not immediately acting on the thought that's just come into their heads. Most people act and then call you afterwards. Um, They call you after they've been arrested, that's usually how it works um what do i say to the police i don't know (laughs) maybe you should have called before anyway whatever faith has to work in us and through us 24 hours a day which means i've got to be in page 199 in the palm of god's hand i've got to be my hand has got to be held by god's the whole time that's the treatment unmanageability I mentioned this, I think, in this meeting a few weeks ago. It is true to say that most alcoholics, and it was true for me, uh, uh, I was neurotic, disorganized, incompetent, and selfish. And if you're neurotic, incompetent, disorganized, and selfish, your yeah, life is probably going to have a few problems in it, few structural problems. Fine. Those are not distinctive features of alcoholism. In fact, I've sponsored a number of people. It's a minority, but a number of people who got to AA, not emotionally unbalanced. There's wreckage from the drinking, but they weren't emotionally immature. They weren't neurotic who weren't disorganized. There were some practical problems, but their life was not a mess, it really wasn't. Um, you meet plenty of people outside AA uh, who are immature, neurotic, incompetent, disorganized, and selfish. It's not a distinguishing feature of alcoholism. It's not, it's not confined to alcoholics and it's not, those are not consistent amongst alcoholics. We might be more like that, who knows, than non-alcoholics, but it's not a defining feature. It's very interesting. uh, In Jim's story and Fred's story, pages 35 and 39 respectively, there is, um, uh, in Jim's case, none of those really is perfectly ordinary emotions. Fred is doing sensationally, in no contemporary reading of unmanageability could Fred identify himself. Go to a hundred meetings and ask people, what is unmanageability? I can tell you 99 out of hundred they'll say something which can be summed up as incompetent, neurotic, disorganized, disheveled, all of those other things. Fred would not be able to identify himself with the second half of step one under that definition. There's something else going on. The big book is not the da Vinci code. There are no secret messages. You don't have to join things up like a sort of peculiar daisy chain of of Byzantine reasonings to arrive at the conclusion. It's meant, it's written to be plain. Unfortunately, unmanageability is not defined in the big book, but fortunately for us, its chief writer, Bill, put pen to paper with the help of Tom Powers and Betty L. I think it's Betty Love. Is that right? Someone will know. 20 years later to write the 12 and 12. And I'm going to read a passage. It is a tremendous satisfaction to record that in the following years, this change, this idea that you had to be a sort of down and out alcoholic. It said, alcoholics who still had their health, their families, their jobs, and even two cars in the garage began to recognize their alcoholism. As this trend grew, they were joined by young people who were scarcely more than potential alcoholics. Nice touch, Bill. Um, They were spared that last 10 or 15 years of literal hell. The rest of us had gone through. Okay, fine, Bill. Since step one, I I started early. Since step one requires an admission that our lives have become unmanageable, how could people such as these take this step? It was obviously necessary to raise the bottom, the rest of us had hit to the point where it would hit them. And what follows is the single answer to what unmanageability is. By going back in our own drinking histories, We could show that years before we realized it, we were out of control, that our drinking even then was no mere habit, that it was indeed the beginning of a fatal progression. If I am powerless over alcohol, I'm not in charge of the course of my life. Powerlessness is my internal state. Unmanageability is what is entailed by that. It is the natural consequence. If I cannot turn the steering wheel, I cannot manage the course of the car. If I run a shop and I try to manage my employees, but they won't listen to me, the shop is unmanageable by me because I have no power over my employees. Power is my power or powerlessness are my internal states. Unmanageability is the effect of those on my life. The dash in step one, for those who are sticklers about this. Uh, there are some very odd tapes where people say things like a dash in English means end of new thought begin end of one thought beginning of a new thought and people try to separate these two parts of step one as so though they're entirely different topics. That's not the use of the dash in American English in 1930s. The dash is used to indicate among um, one of the usage is to indicate a logical entailment. Um, if you said If you put two unrelated thoughts with a dash together, they wouldn't work. I have pneumonia, dash, I have to take insulin. Doesn't make sense. If you say, I have diabetes, dash, I have to take insulin, it makes sense. If you say, I I don't produce insulin, dash, my sugar levels are unmanageable, makes complete sense. The first statement explains The second the second is explained by the first i'm powerless over alcohol if that is the case i'm not in charge of my life whether or not the thought of a drink occurs to me whether or not i'm in the hands of god determines the course of my life it's terrifying and you can have a life which is 100% unmanageable by virtue simply of being powerless over alcohol this is Fred's story, regardless of whether everything else is a mess. Now, if everything else is a mess, we've got the rest of the steps for that. And all of that comes in in the big book, by the way, in pages 60 to 62. That's when it becomes very, very clear where it's going to say, Right, good. You have to turn your world and your life over to God. Wouldn't that be a good idea, just on general principles? Let's look at the nifty job you've been doing of living for the past few decades, and conclude that maybe not just alcohol, but everything else must rightly be turned over to God. It would be in your best interests to do so. So that's so all that stuff. It does get brought in, but the trouble is, if all of that stuff about you know being crack at living if that displaces the real meaning of our manageability the horror of step one is missed the horror of step one is that you're strapped into a train which is heading at 200 miles an hour towards the buffers and there is nothing you can do about it that is the fuel for taking the rest of the steps uh and in particular for making amends for sponsoring people for several hours a day, for doing all of the service that people do in AA. Yes, it's fun. Yes, there's a moral obligation. Yes, we're paying back what was paid to us, but it's it's Dr. Bob's fourth reason, insurance against a slip, by page 199, remaining in the hands of God. Uh, Applying this to, I'm gonna talk for a few minutes and then we'll go to questions about applying this to other areas. All you have, this is so simple. All you have to do is separate out whatever the problem is into two elements. Um, The the two easy, let's pick two really simple ones, sugar and compulsive sexual activity. All you have to do is take the same principles and cross apply them. Have I had consequences? If so, do those consequences keep me from the first bite of the cake? No, okay, that's the first part. When I start, does it trigger something? Now, with most traditional alcoholics, it's very, very clear. The physical craving is very, very clear. Sugar is an interesting one. I try and avoid sugar. Uh, I'm not a member of OA, but I noticed a very strange thing a few years ago. I was on holiday in New Hampshire, and I was not doing sugar. I hadn't been doing sugar for quite some time. On the way back from a meeting, we, and this is the mistake, we stopped at a gas station, I bought, some, I think it was called a Boston Whoopie pie. It's a little chocolate cakey thing with nasty cream in between, nasty little thing. And it was delicious. And the next day about three o'clock in the afternoon, I had these horrible, phys, I, I could feel it phys, I, these horrible cravings. Um, the parallel with sex addiction as well sexual acting out of various, uh, I can be completely free of it. If I cross the boundary once, the compulsion is there the next day. Something changes inside me chemically when I act out in one of those ways. Now, it's a separate question. Is this, you know, is it bad enough to necessitate going to another fellowship or do I use the 12 steps of my existing fellowship treated as a character defect? So it, it's a it's an academic question in some ways, but also it's a practical question. Try one. If it doesn't work, try the other. <laughs> if you try, if you try solving the problem in your current fellowship, it doesn't work, and you keep acting out, you know, welcome to essay. Welcome to OA, we'll give you lists of people to go and get a food plan, get bottom lines in place. You just gradually escalate through the system and eventually the behaviour will stop. In my experience. Um, It's pretty straightforward cross applying this. You just take you take the content of the big book. Don't take it literate, Don't don't look at the literal examples. You're looking at what the substance of it is. And if you look at this very simply in terms of the mental obsession, which takes me to the first action, the first acting out action, the first drug, uh, the physical craving, which keeps me trapped within it. You look at progressive, fatal, incurable. You look at unmanageability, being strapped into the seat of a runaway train and the consequences of that. Uh, if you look at the danger of your own mind that's what I do I look at the danger of relying on my own mind when it comes to those other very very tricky areas Uh, I suspect that it's the same I, I can't prove this I suspect it's the same bit of my brain which is implicated in those other areas as is implicated in my alcoholism which is why although I don't really have Uh, a fulminating problem with with cakes, with sugar, with with white bread. I'm really careful because I can feel that something more powerful than reason is in charge of the decision-making process. And that scares, if you'll pardon my French, the bejesus out of me. Because why aren't I drinking? If I'm capable of taking actions which a casual casual observer would conclude are not in my best interests. Why am I not drinking? I'm clearly capable because the mechanism is exactly the same. Um, I think that's pretty much all I've got on step one in terms of, of a broad outline. There's obviously a lot more detail in the book that can be poured over uh, I'm not sure if if uh, Patrick is as Patrick is still here. So Patrick, do you want to open up the um, session for questions?
1: Yes, Tim. Thank you so much. Wonderful stuff. So the uh, it's open for questions, Q and A with Tim for the thirty minutes or so. So um, and Tim, you want to call on people? Uh, you you're used to doing this, I think. You can see the raised hand option, right? Uh, absolutely that's fine yeah and then uh, once again folks it's been recorded so if you don't want your voice on the recording it only goes to our whatsapp groups you don't put it on youtube no video going anywhere so you're safe but um if you don't feel comfortable having your voice recorded you can just send is it okay to send you a chat message a uh, question tim yeah that's fine okay Meeting's open. Thank you, and uh, try to keep it to a couple of minutes, or so if you can.
0: Thank you. Okay. Uh, so, rain, Rainbow Storm, do you have a question?
2: I mean, uh, not so much a question, more um, you have a book. This 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 uh, big thing you've just done is from a book. Like you just did like step one. It was it a chapter in a book you've written?
0: No, 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 no. It's all from the big book, Alcoholics Anonymous. Oh, okay.
2: All right okay. then. Um, okay. Uh, thank you very much. Very fascinating. Um uh look at things. Yeah, I, I found that really interesting. So uh, a pleasure to make your acquaintance.
0: And Jules, I'm glad you're here. So great. Uh Lynn, would you like to come in and ask your question?
3: Yes, hey, Lynn Alcoholic. Um can you guys hear me okay?
0: We can hear you just fine.
3: Okay, just wave at me if I start to break up and I'll turn my video off. Um, thank you so much, Tim. I so enjoy listening to you. I've only recently been introduced to, to your work um, talks. Thank you. Um, when you talked about how, you know, it's kind of the human condition amongst a lot of people to be, uh, I forget all the words you use, but neurotic and selfish and all those things um and that and i and i agree um but do you have anything to say about an in immature do you have anything to say and then sometimes people aren't regardless of whether they're in aa or not about um who was it tebow's um uh, when tebow talked about or um, there was a study that they did early on about how uh, some doctors did about alcoholics and they found us to be in general, immature and grandiose and all that stuff when we're in our disease. Can you put those two things together? Because I um, I, I, I do, I, I did find that at least when we're still in our disease and not um, do, doing recovery or recovered, that uh, I I I think we do tend that way. Anyway, did you have something to say about that?
0: Yeah, I can expand on some of those points. Um, in my experience, I think it's probably true to say that alcoholics are a bit more out there than non-alcoholics when it comes to what sociologists and psychologists would refer to as behaviors. Uh, <laughs> um. Sometimes if you're in a meeting and you close your eyes and you ask yourself, how old does the person who is sharing sound? You get very interesting answers. But I think it's a red herring. It's interesting. It's, ac- it's academically interesting. but It's a red herring because you still have to do the steps, even if you don't have those difficulties, because the purpose of the steps is to place me in the service of God as opposed to the service of self. Okay, so that I'm going to need to do that. However beautiful um, everything else is in my life, A friend of mine drank at ten years, and his life was great. None of that stuff was kicking off. And you meet plenty of people who poor old souls, are, are really struggle with all of that stuff, but don't drink because they are on the journey of learning how to serve their higher power. So it's a little bit of a red herring. Uh, I think it's interesting, but it, I think it, that really does fall outside the scope of the steps in some ways. The, you know, the, what is the relationship between those two? Um, there are a couple of other points. Uh, there's a wonderful, line in uh the story was uh doctor alcoholic addict now they change it to acceptance as the answer where he says something to the effect of uh the more i rely on a chemical to solve a living problem the less able i am to solve the living problem using living means or something like that and i think it's well said that um uh activation of an addictive process will stop the emotional growth so when you stop the addictive process you have you there's a bit of catching up to do (laughs) maybe a few decades of catching up to do and uh i think it's also true that to engage in this process uh The substances have to stop. Anything which is taking the edge off and the behaviours have to stop. Anything which is taking the edge off, first of all, removes the motivation, but secondly, removes the access point. To put myself in the hands of God, I had to break down. If anything had broken my fall, I wouldn't have done it. The reason I started praying for the first time in my life in 1993, first time sincerely, was because there was literally nothing else I could do. There was no one else to call. I had called everyone. (laughs) No one could rescue me. I turned to God because there was nothing else. And then God turned out to be a thousand times bigger than I gave him credit for there's one other thing which i I think more will be revealed over time in bill w's correspondence with carl jung i just one point about carl jung and those emotional and mental disorders note that roland hazard um by the bottom of page 26 of the big book has got all of his mental and emotional doodals sorted out and he relapses anyway so it's a separate topic it's a separate topic than this fundamental setting of am I out for me or am I there to serve God? But there's an interesting letter between, um, uh, correspondence rather, between Bill W. and Carl Jung, where he says, in effect, that alcoholics are seeking in alcohol union with, with the divine. It's a knockoff version of that. Um, And I think there's something to that. Um, What alcohol did for me was that it, it, when it worked, it removed my sense of separation between me and others. Um, But you know what, even when it didn't do that, I still did it. So how much has it got to do with that? They're interesting questions, but I think they can be distractions from the real business which is to understand the deadly nature of this, the ineluctability of alcoholic destruction without a spiritual awakening, and then building my life around having a spiritual awakening. And then everything you get yourself spiritually straightened out and everything else falls out automatically. It's like Alexander technique. If you get the head positioned properly in relation to the top of the spine, the rest of the body hangs like a doll. Um, and then the, the other things seem to work themselves out. Um, uh, Cheryl, would you like to pose your question?
2: Yes, hi, Tim. Thank you so much. I appreciate um, your um, here you being here today. Yeah, you know what you you said a lot. You met you what you say reminded me. I'm not alcoholic, but I'm everything else. And when I used to when I first came into recovery, I used to sit in the rooms of Al-Anon and like close my eyes and say God. But I, and we, it was suggested we attend open AA meetings. And I used to feel like, you know, damn, I'm an alcoholic. I I just don't drink. And at that time, I didn't understand that. But, you know, I do now. And the way you explained it today, you know, just reiterated that for me. And then you talked about what I like is what you talked about. You know, in my family, alcoholics, you know, they look real good they have two cars in the garage, they have houses, they have homes, you know, and everything. And so if they base, you know, what most people consider unmanageability, they would say, no, they're not alcoholic. They're fine, let's continue drinking and just having fun. But the way you explained it, if you can recap that again, made so much sense because it's not just actually, you know, what you see on the outside because they, you know, These people in my family are real alcoholics. I don't want to take anybody's
0: inventory, but anyway, thank you for that, and with that I pass. Yeah, so so to sum up that unmanageability stuff, if you jump out of a plane without a parachute, um, yeah, your body will be smashed to smithereens only when you hit the ground. The fact you're doing pretty well on the way down is no it's no help it's that's of no benefit to you it's where it's the direction you're heading in which matters and that's the point of the unmanageability the direction of one's life is going to be stipulated by alcohol and one's relationship with it regardless of what consequences have or have not yet hit so that's 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 the summary of that Um, Someone wrote, if I don't identify with a sponsee's particular addiction, but their corresponding fellowship uses the big book, am I okay to sponsor them? And should I tell them to attend their particular fellowship instead of AA if they never identify as alcoholic? Um, (laughs) I'm not going to do a primary purpose lecture, so don't worry about that. Uh, There are plenty of people who will do those, I'll give you their names. but. To sponsor someone successfully, I've got to have at least one substance or addiction in common to form the bond of identification. It's no good, by the way, having two N.A. members, one of whom was a pillhead and the other one was a heroin addict. These are, the, the dynamics are very different. The physical craving manifests very differently with different drugs. So one, I, th- I think I'd, it's the identification. That's the one thing that marked AA out as distinct from earlier attempts to help alcoholics. AA didn't really devise anything new. It put things together. The only thing it did new was that it was one alcoholic talking to another. The last two pages of Dr. Bob's story are very, very good on this. Dr. Bob's nightmare. Uh, now, it's very difficult these days to find... Um, uh, someone with exactly the same portfolio of addictions uh, you know there are so many things to choose from today so as but as long as you've got one or two things in common you've got a few things in common that really helps uh, i wouldn't sponsor someone who i don't have any who don't have any substance in common with so i won't sponsor pure addicts who did not uh who basically didn't drink Um, My experience with crystal meth, I I, I did not take crystal meth. And My observation is that crystal meth users seem to do really well with crystal meth addicts, as opposed to addicts of any other drug. There are dynamics with that, which where it links to other behaviours, which are very specific. Um, When I've had sponsees with pill problems, I send to go and do a step one with someone that also had a pill problem because there's often a deviousness with pills that you don't get with someone. There are particular features of different substances where it is the identification and the specific experience, which is so beneficial because step two is gonna rely on this. I trust it's gonna work for me because I can see it worked for you and I can't see a difference between me and you. Now, when I sponsor people, I often get people with multiple problems. If they've got sex addiction, uh, 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 well, not so much because I can cover the sex stuff. Um, if they've got food problems, although I identify and I have to be very very careful around food, on in both directions. I, uh, whatever. But I send them to OA as well. So go and do steps one, two, and three in OA. A sponsor of mine does these workshops for people who are not members, who are principally members of other fellowships, but need to do a step one, two, and three in OA to get that all taped down, to get some ideas for how to, what what is the sane and sound ideal going to look like with the sex fellowships as well. Uh, one needs to have, or it is recommended that one have bottom lines and they have other lines as well, top lines and, and middle lines, I think. But, but the, how does one impose a certain degree of sanity whilst one is going through the, the period of the steps? It, it's, it's just not as straightforward with sex and with food as it is with alcohol. With alcohol, you just cut it out. You don't cut food out altogether. You need the lived experience of people with that problem. Um, and certainly, anyone is welcome to attend an open AA meeting, and I think it's very informative to do that. I think the cross fertilization between fellowships in that way is very, very helpful and healthy. But I think one must be at home. One must find a home. I found a home in AA. I found a home in Al Anon um, as well. I'm just going to take one more question from the chat, so I don't get completely overwhelmed by those, um, and then we'll come to you, Anthe, So be patient Uh, as a sponsor do you think that it's helpful to look at the manifestation of unmanageability differently when the alcoholic is still drinking as opposed to how the spiritual malady manifests itself in the life of the alcoholic who is not drinking but is busy managing his own life on his own power absolutely that's the whole point of it Uh, so i reserve unmanageability the term unmanageability strictly for its relationship to alcohol as per page 59. Powerless over alcohol, my life is unmanageable. Yeah, you're a basket case too, or well, welcome to the club. Um, uh, but the, 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 the terrible danger with this, have you heard people in meetings saying, well, you know, uh, my life is a lot better now, so I know I'm not gonna drink. I've got so much to lose, so I'm not gonna drink. How well I'm doing outside AA, is not a reliable indicator of whether or not I'm about to succumb to the mental obsession com- to completely different topics. So merging the two under the heading of unmanageability—they're very different things. I, I would not, I would, I would not do it. I'll look at the other questions in the chat in a moment. Anthony, would you like to come in and, with your question?
1: I'm just curious. How long you've been drinking for? How long, obviously sober, twenty-five years. But how long were you been drinking for? And how do you remember all this twenty-five years after?
0: Thank you. So um, I started drinking in the mid nineteen eighties. I was born in nineteen seventy-one. I started drinking. Uh, I was still a child, really, um, and carried on drinking until nineteen ninety-three. Uh, One of the things about going to AA for... So
1: eight years, if you don't mind me asking, eight years?
0: Yes, yes.
1: So you started drinking when you were 14? Uh, In
0: 1985, yeah, when I was 14.
1: 15. Okay.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So about... Yeah, okay, so the... um, uh, the other part of that, how do you remember all of this? Well, if you go to AA for long enough and go to lots of meetings and you have hundreds and hundreds of sponsees and have to tell the story over, and people keep asking you to tell your story for some reason, it kind of sticks in your memory after a while. <laughs> and it's funny how talking to new talking to new alcoholics, I remember things now which get dredged up because uh, I recognise myself in other people's. In other people's stories,
1: yes. But Uh, how long did it take you to get addicted to it? Two years.
0: Well, I don't use the word. This is this is the thing. I don't use the word addicted. It's not. It's not. It's that. That's not what is relevant. What is relevant is these two elements. Did I drink too much? Did I overshoot? Yes. When did that start? Straight away. Oh. When did consequences really start to hit? 1987 or so did that stop me no those are the two elements so the ordinary language of the outside world you set it aside and you just take the big take the questions in the big book or the implied mm-hmm. questions you use the big book as a mirror and say am i like this am i like this and that is what produces your diagnosis so now it's, it's it's very interesting and a very valid uh question uh, for one reason is that um Uh, people who are alcoholics per the big book will not necessarily flag up up in medical screenings as being alcoholic. People can get missed. And there are people who flag up as alcoholic, who stop drinking, who are helped by agencies and have no trouble staying stopped. AA is for this very particular beast... (laughs) of someone that overshoots when they drink and keeps going back to it anyway. Because if that is the case, it doesn't matter if you fly, If your doctor thinks you're an alcoholic. Our experience suggests that if you are like that, that's where you're heading. And there's a very important point here. I don't know if anyone has been to uh, New York. There's also a, a, a more mundane example with the underground system in London. but the new york subway system i find very confusing and i'm not a slouch you know i try and study the maps but still and you get on a train and you think oh this will go three stops three stations along and 30 stations go by before the doors open again and you think, well i didn't know that was going to happen and alcoholism is like that people say oh, if if, if you slip just come back to aa well if You can't, you can't just come back. You can't just walk back in. Um, It got really bad, so I came back. No, that's not true. The reason it's not true is because I can give you the names and addresses of dozens of other people who are in just as bad a state, but are not coming back. If you came back because things got bad, why do other people for whom things are just as bad not come back? Clancy tells this story about these people dying of alcoholism, and the day they die, they say, when it gets really bad, I will join AA. Um, Coming back after a slip is like being washed up by a powerful ocean onto the shore. You're not in charge of the washing up process. You don't wash yourself back up onto the shore. You better hope the currents take you back up onto the shore. Once you're on the shore, you run like hell for the hills so the next big wave doesn't take you out to sea again. I'm gonna have a look at the, um, see if there are any other questions in the chat. Let's have a look. So someone said, Tim, when sponsoring alcoholics with other, other obsessions, do you use the big book equivalent of that fellowship in addition to the AA big book? Well, OK, let's make a distinction here. Let's make a distinction between addiction, addictions proper. So addictions where there's a very clear implication of brain processes, dopamine systems, physical addiction. Let's make a distinction between those and the very strange my alanonism which is going to be that that's what next week is going to be you won't recognize me I'll be from the other side of the fence um, there's something else going on there it's a different it, it it's almost like it, it's on a different circuit um, so if I'm sponsoring people with Uh, other problems. Um, uh, The drug addicts that I've sponsored, who are also alcoholics, they tend to go to Drug Addicts Anonymous, which uses the big book, or they'll go to Cocaine Anonymous, which I I don't know about America, but certainly in the UK, they say, as long as you've got alcohol or any drug, we don't care. We're called Cocaine Anonymous, but we'll cover everything. Fine. Uh, And they use the big book too. So we're we're good. We're fine. what I get people to do is read the literature of your own fellowship as well. But what I find is uh, too many books can make it really complicated getting someone through the process. So get through the process with one book, and then you can you can read other stuff later. Trying to amalgamate different books from different systems just don't. Need, I I don't even try it because I've never got it to work for me. Later on, I then dip. It's even within AA. I just use the Big Book. Once that's all dealt with I dip and borrow things from the 12 and 12 you cannot put the system in the 12 and 12 together with the system in the big book and there are at there are catastrophes around step 10 and 11 where part of step 11 in the big book is turned into step 10 in the 12 and 12 and then that the, the step 10 in the in in the big book is that the idea of, of, of waking consciousness all through the day is just not there in the 12 and 12. Um, The philosophy of transcending self in the big book is fundamentally at odds with the philosophy of the 12 and 12, which is you'll have to tone it down, mate. You're not gonna transcend this stuff. You're just gonna have to live with, you know, get these instincts. So there's a difference between the instincts in the 12 and 12, which are all well and good, but we just have to keep, you know, put them on a leash to the big book, which is the ego is gonna kill you. You need to get rid of it different philosophy don't mix the philosophies because it doesn't work uh, the the one other fellowship where i i do mix things up a bit is the is the al-anon stuff where the al-anon step one i start with the big book but then i bring in all sorts of other stuff which does come from the al-anon literature and al-anon meetings i've been going to al-anon since, since on and off since uh, nineteen ninety five, um, so that's a that's a slightly different that's a slightly different thing. But uh, one little point about the Alanon um, experience, and this is just a quick summary in case anyone can't make it next week. When I do step one in Alanon, I say I'm powerless over alcohol, and my life has become unmanageable. If I've got an alcoholic in my life, I cannot control whether or not they drink. If they drink, I cannot control how much they drink. If they drink a lot, I cannot control the things they do when they're drinking. If that is in my life, to that precise extent, is there an element of chaos over which I have no control unmanageability? But then my reaction to the, my automated pre-programmed reaction to the alcoholic, which is nuts, I'm as powerless over that as the alcoholic is over alcohol. And also, I was talking to someone earlier today about this, about how uh, part of me really likes having alcoholics in my life. As a friend of mine says, alcoholics are a lot of fun until they're not. Also having an alcoholic mess in my life. If I've got an alcoholic mess in my life, I'm off the hook because I always look good compared to the alcoholic mess. If I'm sober, it's a way of getting myself off the hook. And also if there's an alcoholic running around causing trouble, I don't have to look at any of my own stuff. They're the perpetrator, I'm the victim. I buy my innocence at the cost of their alcoholism. It's very tricky stuff. It's on a different, as I said, it's on a different circuit, I think, to the alcohol. Another question. Um, covered that one. Good. I you know I don't think there are any other questions. Let's see. Let's just ask again because we're coming up to seven thirty. Just gone seven thirty. Uh, so will will I be discussing Alanon this later date? Yeah, so next week, uh, we'll we'll do a very very brief recap of what is an alcoholic from the Alanon's point of view. So we've got the alcoholic as a specimen in the jar. Don't literally put them in a jar with formaldehyde. I know it's tempting, but you know, let them live. But the, it's the alcoholic as a specimen, and how I, as the untreated alanon, react to the alcoholic, and then take that behaviour and replicate it in all the rest of my life. Uh, so that's what we're going to be uh, talking about uh, next week.